Hi, I'm Betty. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I am the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, which is a 10-speed press Penguin Random House publication that came out in 2015. And that book is where I give you my insider's perspective as a longtime labor and delivery nurse on prenatal care and pregnancy and how to navigate the healthcare system so that both mom and baby have the best pregnancy possible. We often lose sight that of um, mom's experience during the prenatal healthcare uh, journey. And, you know, part of the reason why I wrote the book is because I want to remind people that this isn't just about the baby. This is about mom. This is about mom. Yeah. The thing about the book, though, is that so much goes into any parent's health profile or, you know, what they consider having the best possible experience. There's a lot of different things that go into that. Just like there's a lot more to health than, you know, doctor or midwife visits. And beyond the obvious factors like diet, exercise, and stress reduction, and sleep, and don't smoke, and don't do drugs, and that kind of stuff, there are so many social issues, and cultural issues, and political issues, and racial issues. Humanity is a complicated mess, isn't it? And all of it impacts women's abilities to thrive during pregnancy and birth and parenthood. And it also impacts men's abilities to be, you know, fully participatory as partners in pregnancy and parenting. And, you know, so that's what this podcast is about. It's about all the things we need to talk about in order for us to, you know, really do our best as parents and as people and in life, right? And to bring our children up the way that we feel is the right way. So let's see, what do we want to talk about this week? Um, well, besides picking up a copy of my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, which you can get all over the place, I like to recommend books written by other women in this field. Um, I interviewed Avital Norman Nathman back in episode eight, uh, real early on in the podcast, on feminism and motherhood. And Avital is the author of the book, The Good Mother Myth, which is a collection of essays from um, women from all walks of life about motherhood. And it includes all kinds of mothers who are often marginalized. And I think every mother will find themselves, you know, warts and all on these pages. And you'll finish the book thinking, well, okay then, I guess it's okay to be me. And let's see, way back in episode five, I interviewed author Jessica Shortall about workplace breastfeeding policies and her book, Work Pump Repeat. And I think this book is a must read, not only for pregnant and breastfeeding women and their partners, um, you know, who will be re- returning to the workplace, but it's a must read for anyone who thinks who needs, you know, primary information on what it's like to be a working mother or father in America. I particularly think this is an important read for anyone who works in human resources and has women on their payrolls. This is what feminism looks like right now. And these books have really powerful things to contribute to the conversation. Well, it's been a while since I've done a book-related interview, and this week, as I was you know, scanning headlines and social media posts, I came across an LA Times op-ed that really resonated with me. And I tracked down the author on Twitter, found out she had a book being launched this week that's right up my alley, and within another email or two, Sarah Mankadick and I were lined up for this here podcast. But before we get Sarah on the phone, let's do a little bit of housework, shall we? First of all, I want to thank everyone who has gone over to iTunes and left such lovely reviews. I really appreciate the support. And the more reviews we get, the better visibility this podcast gets and the wider our listener audience. I want as many people as possible to be in on this conversation. So help me out, will you? And if you haven't left a review, get on that. Also, if you're not a subscriber to this podcast yet, get on that too. If you have an episode idea you think I should cover, or you see an article or a post or something that you think we should be talking about, or you have a question of some sort, email me at gene at genefaulkner.com. And now 
for the news I'm most excited about today, right now, this minute. My new website is live, and I am super pleased with the way it turned out. It takes, you know, all the different parts of what I do as a writer and a podcaster and an advocate and a nurse and then some, and tidies it all up and makes it pretty and organized. I just love it. I love it a lot. And I want to give a big shout out to my web designer who pulled this whole thing together, Brenda Rose. Um, she really listened to what I wanted and then just gave me so much more. So thank you, Brenda. Um, you should check out Brenda's website at brendarose.com and take a look at her designs and her art and her all-around general brilliance. Also, the most important thing is this. Thank you. Thank you to all of you who are growing our audience and sending me such thoughtful emails and questions and sharing this conversation with your friends. We're growing and I am grateful. Thank you. And now let's talk to talk about this week's guest. Sarah Menkedick is the author of Homing Instincts from Pantheon Press, which was just launched on May 2nd, 2017, this week. Sarah's writing has been featured in Harper's, Pacific Stanford, Oxford American, The Paris Re- Review Daily, Eon, Guernica, Amazon's Kindle Singles, and elsewhere. Her essay, Homing Instincts, was selected as noticeable notable in the Best American Essays 2014, and her essay, Living on the Hyphen, was selected as notable in the Best American Essays 2015. She was a 2015-2016 Fulbright Fellow in Oaxaca, Mexico. Sarah holds a Bachelor of Arts in History of Science from the University of Wisconsin and a Master of Fine Arts in Nonfiction from the University of Pittsburgh, where she taught nonfiction writing. She is the founder of Vela, an online magazine of nonfiction writing by women. Sarah also recently wrote an op-ed for the LA Times titled, Why Don't People Take Writing About Motherhood Seriously? Because Women Do It. So obviously, with a bio and a headline like that, I had to get her on the line. Hello. Hi, Sarah. This is Jeannie. How are you? Good. How are you? I am doing really well. So um, where in the world am I actually finding you? <laughs> you are finding me in my car on a uh, street in Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania right now. Um, this is uh, the quietest place I could find within like a mile radius of my house. So uh, <laughs> and my daughter can't can't find me out here. So you know, this is this is the reality of mothering. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can't tell you how many interviews I've conducted over the years with women sitting in their car. And I've even been, remember, like decades ago, somebody wanted to interview me about um, sacred spaces for women. And she wanted to ask me where in my life I had created a sacred space just for me. And I as we were talking, I had had to go out and sit in my car to talk to her because there is nowhere. There's nowhere. There's nowhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My husband was like, well, there's the there's the closet and the basement and the car. And those were the options presented. <laughs> so this seems the funniest out of all of those. Oh, darn right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I... Um, I read your bio and your LA Times um, headline in our intro, but I always like to make my very first question be this one. Who are you and what do you do? Okay. Well, I think I can answer that one. Um, I (laughs) am a writer Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I have a book that just came out yesterday, actually, which is very exciting called Homing Instincts, Mm -hmm. which is about becoming a mother in a tiny little cabin on an Ohio farm and, you know, all of the the transitions and the, you know, the changes that come with pregnancy and early motherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, yeah, that's, and I run a magazine called Vela, which is um, nonfiction writing by women. Mm-hmm. So that's the other big sort of arm of what I'm doing right now. And yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. All right. Well, I want to talk about the book, Homing Instincts, and congratulations. I know yesterday was a big day. I, I know that feeling, and I just, I'm there with you. I love it. Um, 
Thank you. Know, you. Yeah. yeah, we got a babysitter for the second time ever, which is amazing. So, you know, it's a big occasion when yeah. that happens. How old is your baby? Yeah. She's oh, she's not a baby anymore. I have to stop calling her the baby. She's almost three. So, you know, it feels really crazy to have this book, like, start its journey in the world at a time when in the past week she just potty trained and weaned. So we're, like, done. 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 Um, yeah. So that, that feels like a crazy parallel there. Wow. That is but, kind of yeah. That is kind of a whole lot going on in your life in one fell swoop, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 yeah I, I guess so. Maybe that that needed to happen for the book to make its way or something. Who knows, you know? Who yeah, knows? Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the book. Um, you and I really only met online yesterday. And your book actually only just arrived on my porch about 10 minutes ago. So I'm winging it here. But what I want to do is I want to um, you know, read the little excerpt about the book. Can I? Is that cool? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Great. It's called Homing Instincts, Early Motherhood on a Midwestern Farm by Sarah Menkedick. And Pantheon Press came out yesterday. It's the story of one woman's coming of age as a first-time parent on her family's rural Ohio farm. After teaching English to recalcitrant teenagers on Reunion Island, picking grapes in France, and witnessing a revolution in Mexico, Sarah Menkedick, at 31, embarks on what might become her most challenging adventure yet. She moves into a tiny 19th century cabin on her family's farm and prepares to become a mother. She never expected to want this kind of settled life, and yet she finds a new peace and inspiration in the surrounding natural world as she and her husband, Jorge, prepare for the exciting unknown. Mankatik juxtaposes the progress of her pregnancy and the larger questions it inspires with recollections of her family history, being raised by a single and unapologetically hippie father, her paternal grandmother, Millie, whose Midwestern German fortitude informed the character of the next two generations, and her husband, Jorge's loving but difficult childhood in Oaxaca, Mexico. Altogether, it becomes a luminous portrait of the time just before and after new motherhood. Woo! I bet you wrote that. <laughs> I did not write that, actually, but I was I was very happy with the editor who did. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, so now I've read the little... The little brief. Tell me mm -hmm. where this book came from. Tell me about this little cabin. Tell me the story. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, this book came out of, um, you know, basically out of a series of, of random decisions, one of which was to move into this cabin on my parents' Ohio farm after I'd finished uh, my MFA program at the University of Pittsburgh. And you know, was really dedicated to this career as a writer and absolutely uncertain as to how to make that work mm -hmm. <laughs> financially. Mm -hmm. um, and my dad said, you know, I think my dad was a little bit worried that we were just going to like hightail it back to Mexico. And he sensed that it was a crucial moment. So he said, you can come stay in the cabin for a while. Neither of us having any idea that a while would essentially turn into two years of me <laughs> becoming a mother. But that's, that's the way it went. So yeah, a month after we moved in, um, I found out I was pregnant. And then, you know, that that obviously was, um, you know, a major shift in my life. And I think it took me uh, several months at least to really process the enormity of that. You know, I was talking with a friend the other day and I think I had thought, you know, oh, pregnancy, it'll be like this, you know, nine month period while I just sort of continue with my life and then the baby will come and everything mm -hmm. will change. And I think that's how we talk about it often culturally yeah. but really for me it was you know and I think for many women it was the moment I got pregnant I mean the magnitude of it hit me in, yeah, you know, and it just utterly rocked me yeah and I think I had just been expecting like I'll just sort of go on my way and do mm -hmm. my thing and then and then we'll have a baby and we won't sleep and all that and no I mean I really was hit with the the, the full force of it right off the bat so um so the book partially grew out of just trying to make sense of, of how enormous and how overwhelming and how complex that transition was, because, you know, I think I had just, I think as a culture, there's, there's not, we just really don't talk about that very much. I mean, there's so much that we talk about in terms of pregnancy and motherhood, and it tends to be, 
rather <clears throat> simplistic and, and, you know, we resort to all these cliches and there is some truth in a lot of those, but I mean, the, the experience I think is so much more complex and profound and there's just, there's not that much literature surrounding it. And, you know, I, I found like a handful of books, all of which were written over a decade ago that were just that I needed so badly. I mean, I needed them. Like I, you know, I, I make the comparison in my book, like I had a craving for those Haribo gummy bears and like, it was the same with these pregnancy books. I just, I needed those, I needed to see that experience in writing and literature to, to really feel like, uh, to feel it validated, you know? And so I, you know, I, I was, amazed at how badly I needed those books and how important they were for me. And then I, you know, from there, it was, it was just all so forefront in my mind. And I was sort of stunned that I hadn't read anything about these transitions and how intense they were. And I started writing, you know, writing about that. And then mm-hmm. eventually a series of essays grew out of it. So, and also it was such a unique moment in my life. I mean, I had basically spent the past decade traveling and then here I am, you know, in this very small sort of cloistered space, very dark little space, like two hours from the nearest coffee shop, just in the middle of nowhere, literally. And um, and so I think that really heightened the sense of, of being in this liminal period of pregnancy. And it, it was, you know, in a way, looking back on it now, it was in some ways like a really profound travel experience, even though I didn't go anywhere, mm-hmm. because I was just in such a distinct space and time. And at the same time, going through this really powerful transition that, you know, so many women are familiar with who have become mothers in all sorts of circumstances. But So just how um, rustic was this cabin? Did you have electricity and plumbing? <clears throat> yeah. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I mean, I think we had a, we had a photographer actually come out there. Um, I did a story for Southwest magazine and, and the photographer came and he walked into the cabin and I could tell he was sort of like, oh, my gosh, you lived here when he first went in there. Cause it is very, very dark. It was mm-hmm. built in um, the 1800s. I forget the exact date, 1828. I think it's on the National um, Register of, of Historic Places. So it's quite old and very, you know, very small windows and very tiny. Um, and just like a, a little um, sort of living room downstairs that with a wood burning stove that we relied on for heat in the winter and um, and a tiny kitchen. And then just like um, one sort of like room barely big enough for a twin bed upstairs and then a bedroom and a bathroom with a bathtub. Um, and that's it. And a little attic where it's just freezing all winter. So very small space. And mm-hmm. then, you know, um, juxtaposed outside with a lot of land with 40 acres of land so i mean that that really saved us we could be in that space in the cabin but then you know every day we would spend at least half the day outside walking and you know and doing things outside so that you know that was essential the original (laughs) tiny house revolution (laughs) yeah i guess so (laughs) you know we were ahead of the times on that i suppose was it just you and your husband yeah, I mean, then my parents lived down the hill, um, so they had bought that land after my brother and I had left. And they, we, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and then they, they bought that land and they built their house on it. So they had their house, you know, about um, I don't know, just a short walk away from ours. And there's sort of a barn and, and a chicken coop and things like that in between the cabin and the house. So it was nice because, you know, we would have dinner fairly often and we could, you know, meet and have coffee and do things like that. But we could also just have our own space if mm-hmm. we really needed to be, you know, doing our own thing. It sounds idyllic. It really does. It sounds idyllic. What was your... It really is, the space. Yeah, it's beautiful. What was your healthcare experience like during pregnancy? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I went to a clinic in Zanesville, which was about an hour long drive away. Um, And then I went, I ended up finding um, midwives in Columbus because um, I really, I really wanted a natural birth. And I actually really wanted a home birth, but I decided that that probably wasn't the most practical option since we were a good 45 minutes from a hospital, you know, and and a pretty rural hospital. So, and then I was actually really glad that I made that decision because I I had a wonderful birth, but um, I did have meconium, which I'm sure you know about in my amniotic fluid. So that was a hospital transfer. Yes, exactly. And it was not a big deal. She came out screaming and totally fine. Um, But I was grateful at that time that I was in a hospital. Yeah. So I ended up um, 
I, I feel like I got the best of both worlds because I was with these midwives um, that work at the OSU Medical Center in Columbus. Mm-hmm. So they do their own thing. And unless there's some sort of problem, the OB doesn't intervene. Nice. So I got the sort of like natural birth midwife experience mm-hmm. and, you know, got to eat during labor and got to spend the whole time in the hospital. And um, I was going to have a water birth and ended up not actually birthing in the tub, but I got to have all of that. And then I was also in the hospital. So if anything had happened, you know, we had, um, and when the meconium incident happened, we had up like full pediatric team there in case she would have inhaled any mm-hmm. of it or any of that. Mm-hmm. So I was really grateful for that. I think that's a really great option yeah, for women is. is to be able to do those, you know, those two things. So, yeah, especially in, um, you know, a more rural setting like where you were where you were living and there are just so few 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 options available for yeah them. yeah it's yeah, a real I mean, problem and we drove two hours right we drove two hours for every appointment which got to be a little much at the end because we drove into columbus uh, because i was really set on you know I, I was really set on having the birth there i really didn't want to use a rural hospital and um and so, you know, and it was it was interesting, our experience. We did have our first appointments in Zanesville and at some rural clinics. And, you know, and I'm really grateful for those places. At the same time, you know, it's a very different type of care than you find at like a major medical center in a big city. So, yeah, so actually, you know, I knew when I was going to go into labor that we would have to leave immediately because we'd have to drive two hours. Yeah. So we drove, you know, my first few hours of early labor and made it thankfully in time. So was it a fairly easy labor? It was. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, You know, I'd say it was about 12 hours start to finish, but the really, you know, the intense active labor was probably about five or six hours. So really not bad, you know, not I mean, bad. looking back on it. Yeah. I thought, you know, of course you think in the beginning, oh, this is so intense. And then I can mark the distinct moment where it was like, wow, that was not intense at all. Like this is the real thing and yeah. that's really happening. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so we drove in and then we sort of went to the hospital and I was still like joking and laughing and eating popsicles. And yeah, and then there was just one moment where it it was like, oh my gosh, here we go. And then from there, it was about five or six hours until she was born. So, and it was a natural birth. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I feel incredibly lucky because I had, um, and this was also a benefit of the midwives, I had my sister and my stepmom and my mom were all present and Jorge. Mm-hmm. So there were four people in there mm-hmm. and, and they had all, um, you know, save for Jorge, of course, they'd all had natural births. And so they had all been through it and they were just really calm and great cheerleaders. And like it, that, it was an incredible experience. And that sounds great. Again, it sounds kind of idyllic. You sound like you're living right, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Well, that's a great great affirmation to hear. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about what your book process was like, but I also want to talk about the LA Times article that, um, or the op-ed that you recently had published in the LA Times titled, why don't people take writing about motherhood seriously? Because women do it. And actually, that's the headline that I saw where I said, that's right. You know, I, (laughs) let's talk about your book process a little bit first. And then let's talk about what your publicity and marketing experience was was like for the book. I bet that's what inspired the op-ed. Um, no, I mean, the op-ed, I think, was inspired by a lot of different, you know, a lot of different experiences over the years running a magazine of writing by women. And then, you know, um, and then the reaction of so many people when I said, um, my book is about motherhood and and my own feeling of reticence to say that my book was about motherhood and then Mm -hmm. questioning that feeling of like, why am I, why am I holding back about that? And that seems like it's, it's indicative of a larger cultural problem. So it sort of grew out of that. Those phenomenon, but well, I I've had that experience myself, where the book that you know I wrote that this podcast is is based on is Common Sense Pregnancy, and it's a kind of a feminist guide to prenatal care. And okay, I always felt like I had to add that little caveat that it is not just about pregnancy and babyhood; it's not just about little mommies doing their little pregnancy thing. It's about, you know, hard tech healthcare information that women need to make decisions. And right. But you got to defend it, you know? Right. Right. Yeah, I feel like there's this it, it it's interesting that it's not, you know, you you do have to defend it. You have to sort of stand up for its integrity because that's not a given. You know, it right. sort of shoves off automatically 
into this space of, of triviality, you know. To the and, point um, where pregnancy books are generally shelved in the children's section of bookstores and libraries. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Where's I remember your book? being... I don't know. You know, I haven't encountered it in the wild yet. <laughs> so uh, I have to go look. I have to go look for it. I think I'm, I'm having a book launch tomorrow at, a, at an independent bookstore. And I think there it is with the essays. So Lucky. that's encouraging. But yeah, <laughs> but I remember, um, yeah, I remember, you know, going to find books and I wanted to find, you know, sort of literary books about pregnancy and motherhood. And, and they just directed me to the children's section. And mm-hmm. all it was, was what to expect when you're expecting right. sleep training and you know, so that was really shocking. Yeah, yeah. It's, and so, you know, my experience, I live in a pretty literary town. And even mm-hmm. here, I'm in Portland, Oregon. So even here, okay. you know, when you have a book that is launching, that is, you know, a pregnancy book, um, you don't, you don't get a whole lot of calls for readings. There isn't a big book tour yeah. that goes along with it. And the response was that, you know, they just don't really, people just won't come out for it. And that's so huh. discouraging because when I talk to women yeah. about their experience, they're starving for the information and the opportunity to talk about it with other women. Yeah. You know, I really, I, I was thinking a lot about this lately about that sort of like, oh, people don't don't want that or there's no audience for that. And, you know, it like, it reminded me of this New Yorker article that I read I, a couple of years ago about the founder of Chobani. This this might be the most random comparison ever, but I I I've like can't stop thinking about it. That you know he when he started his company and everyone said to him, you know, nobody wants this kind of yogurt. People are just so used to the sort of like watered down junk food, you know, mm-hmm. American style of yogurt. And then it was wildly successful, and people did really want that, and they mm-hmm. wanted to eat better yogurt, mm-hmm. which, like, that's probably the worst comparison I can make. No, it's a pretty good one. I like it. Time, I do I do feel like people, women want that. Women want to read, really, you know, read about the, the complexity and the intensity of this experience, and they mm-hmm. don't need to be treated like children. You know, right. they don't need to be given this really watered down sort of simplified information. And, and I, I think that's very much a part of a culture of patriarchy that we live in, you know? So I do think that, that, you know, women want that and yet we're told that they don't, you know, or, or there, there are other sort of reasons for, um, you know, for keeping pregnancy in this sort of childish realm, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Women are often told what they want, aren't they? Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, it's exactly and, or what's you know, good for them and works for many, many um authoritarian systems if women uh are subservient. It doesn't it? Right. Yeah. Patriarchy. And it also I think you know, and you know, if you read it's it's amazing to me how much Adrian Rich's book, you know, of Woman Born is still so relevant and actually mm-hmm. feels like urgent now in 2017 but you know just her writing about how pregnancy is is the realm of women and men obviously that's something they will never be able to own and so Mm -hmm. it has been reduced to this sort of childish exercise and Mm -hmm. and simplified and demeaned and so you know I think part of the idea of writing about motherhood as if it were a subject any subject worthy of intensive creative exploration is to Mm -hmm. say no this this is really this is important this is serious this is you know um, this is just as important as writing about war or sports or all the things that we take for granted as right. being incredibly complex and right. serious. So, Well, I, for one, am really, really grateful that you are putting this work in the world because it's going to be writers like yourself, and I'm going to include myself in it. We're going to be raising the status of women who write about motherhood for the world. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I mean, it's really encouraging. I'm I'm always really happy to see other women, you know, taking that on as a complex subject. And, and, um, you know, I've been amazed at how many people have written me actually after the LA Times piece and just said, you know, um, I've, you know, I've, I've gone through this really powerful transition in motherhood, and I've been really interested in it. And like, that piece expressed for them why they had not you know, had not wanted to really talk about that or had felt embarrassed about that. And, you know, these were artists and people making documentaries and writers and things like that. And I do think there is sort of like such a powerful stigma mm-hmm. against taking that on as as a subject of your work as a woman, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I was really, I was really amazed by that. Um, and I was really like, gosh, imagine if all those people were making work about this. I mean, I would be so eager to see that and read that, you know. But we're starting to see it. I mean, there's your book. And then a couple yeah. years back, there was Avital Norman Nathman's book, um, The Good Mother Myth. And, uh-huh. you know, there's, there's stuff coming out along the line right now. And, and I feel like we're culturally starting to see a lot more about women for women by women. And um, you yes, know, definitely. you're right in line with that. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. did did you find that? So did you propose the book to your publisher? Or did you go through a, yes. an agent? Or how did you work it? What was your process? Uh-huh. Um, so I have an agent, and um, I actually, as I tend to do, I wrote most of it, and then I wrote a proposal. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she sent the proposal with, you know, the, the manuscript that wasn't complete, but what I had done. And, um, yeah, sent it out to a number of places, and then um, Pantheon ended up dying it, which was really exciting. So, yeah. and, you know, of course, that was like two years ago. So it's a long process. Right. <laughs> and now it just came out yesterday. So, yeah. yeah. Well, congratulations. Isn't it great? Doesn't it feel wonderful? It really does. You know, I was surprised at how powerful it was yesterday. I was writing like weepy emails to all of my women writer friends. Yeah. Like, it's here in the world. Yeah. You know, I think I, because it's such a long process that by the end, you're sort of like, all right, you know. But when it actually happened and I actually people were taking pictures of it, you know, in their houses and it became real in this in this great way. And so. you haven't been to the bookstore yet to take a selfie with it? I have not. You know how motherhood goes. <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday I went, I did go out. We got the babysitter. That felt monumental. And then today I sort of worked and ran around all day and, you know put my daughter in the bath and raced out to my car. <laughs> so <laughs> so no, I have to go do that. Yeah. Tomorrow we'll do a reading here in Pittsburgh. So I'll yeah. get to see it out there. So that'll be exciting. But Yeah. It's fun. It's a it's a fun little narcissistic experience that, you know, take a go find my yeah. book. Yeah. It's fun. It's fun. Yeah, yeah, I've got to, I've got to go get that milestone out of the way. Yeah. It's fun. I would imagine that um, you know, writers and authors out there in the world who sell millions and millions and millions of copies probably don't go search their books down in bookstores, but (laughs) maybe the rest of us do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, count me in among those. I will definitely, as soon as I have time, I'll be out there. So since your book is considered, it's a book of, it's a compilation book of essays, do you think... Mm -hmm. How is it being marketed? How is it? How is your publicity experience going? Um, good. You know, I mean, I like if this is my first book, so you know, I really have nothing to compare it to, mm-hmm. and not really any idea. Um, you know what, sort of like what the standard is, but mm-hmm. I mean, so far it's been a really positive experience, and you know, I think they're they are um, you know reaching out to people who are interested in parenting and interested in motherhood, but then also just to a lot of different. Um, publications and and podcasts and things like that so Mm -hmm. you know and I'm I'm happy like I definitely want I'm proud to occupy that space of pregnancy and motherhood and want to stand up for that obviously as I said Mm -hmm. in my in my LA Times piece but you know also I'm happy to see it being you know marketed as as a literary book as an essay collection that Mm -hmm. just happens to be about motherhood um so Yeah, I mean, so much of the process, I feel like with the first book, and probably it might be true with every book is different, you know, but you just, you know, I feel like it's, I'm just sort of bumbling along learning things as I go, you know, probably like two weeks late each time. Right. (laughs) But so I'll be prepared for the next one. But, uh, you know, I think, I think that um, there's a lot of struggle among authors as to where your book gets placed and how it gets publicized. And you'll hear authors say, right. Oh, don't let it be, you know, tagged as a romance novel or don't let it be tagged as science fiction right. or don't let it be a dystopian thing. Because then you get, you know, pigeonholed into this one little marketing plan or this one little niche audience and it limits your your marketability. But boy, you're already a little bit pigeonholed by the fact that it is about women, which is unfortunate. But I think that that's also a really big strength because it seems like you are um, presenting the subject in a way that people are just really, really hungry to hear about. You're, you're filling a need. Yeah. 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 I hope so. And I feel like one way to respond to that is to be like, 
you know, I don't think to, to just say, yeah, it is about mothering. It is about women and that's important and mm-hmm. that's worthwhile. And mm-hmm. I don't mind saying that it's about that, you know? Um, and, you know, I think I've always had a little strain of that in me because I, I founded my magazine, you know, which is also writing by women and, um, and, you know, was a little bit worried about obviously the stigma that comes with that of, oh, women writers and writing for women and, and, you know, women's magazines and all of that. And yet we can have men's magazines that are taken very seriously and that mm-hmm. publish really exceptional writing. So I've always wanted to sort of reclaim that and say, yeah, this is writing by women and it's great and it's exceptional and everyone should read it, you mm-hmm. know? And so I still, I feel like the same way about this book of saying, yeah, it is about motherhood and, you know, and that's a fantastic thing. And everyone, it, it should be accessible to everyone. That shouldn't mean that it's sort of put in this niche box. that's only for, you know, a certain type of reader or that it's, it's a certain type of book, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of that's sort of the way I fight back against that. We'll see how that goes in the you long know, run. But there's actually at the moment. There's actually nothing more universal than motherhood. Everybody either has a mother, right. is a mother, or knows a mother. None of us got out of here, right. w- got in here without a mother. You know exactly. I know. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm doing this reading tomorrow night here, and reading with a friend of mine who doesn't have children. But you know, she was saying, "Oh, what should I read?" I'm like, "Well, I'm sure that every anything that you read, it's like you have a mother, or she has a mother. I'm sure there's a mother in there somewhere. I'm sure yeah. it'd be fine." Yeah. So you know, it really is amazing that it gets treated as a sort of niche subject when it it is so universal, and you know, um, I just think has appealed to so many people. And even if it is a book that that appeals mainly to mothers or to people interested in motherhood, I don't think that that necessarily means that it has to be diminished because of that, you know, because I think, as you said, a lot of those people really want books that speak powerfully to their experience. And, you know, that's, that's an honor for me to be able to do that because those women that I read during my pregnancy did that for me. And those are the books that I love more than anything in the world now, you know? So I think that's a, that's a great thing to be able to do. Yeah. You're writing about a core personal experience in a new way. That's valuable. Yeah. yeah. Tell yeah. me, tell I me just so, yeah. a little bit more about Vela. Yeah. So I founded Vela in 2011, um, and I was I was still in grad school, and I had just finished an internship in New York, and um, and I think I had just like had my first taste of the publishing world and. And, you know, making my way in the publishing world. And I came away from that, like, really energized, but also feeling like, you know, I needed something else. Like, I felt like success in, in that traditional world is also tends to be somewhat formulaic and tends to demand that you adhere to, like, a very male paradigm of mm-hmm. writing and thinking. And so I, I wanted to create a separate space that was not defined as, like, a women's realm per se, you know, mm-hmm. what that even looks like, or, mm-hmm. you know, that, that wasn't defined in that way, but that could be sort of outside of the, that paradigm. And that was my own and that of some writer friends of mine. And, um, you know, so we started a magazine, six, it was me and, and five other writers. And, uh, and then, you know, many of them have moved on and have their own writing careers now. And that's really exciting. And some of them are still like my senior editors. And it's been an amazing experience to throughout all of these vicissitudes of publishing, you know, sometimes you're doing really well, and sometimes you're in despair and whatever. And Ella has been that solid space this entire time where I can do my own thing and where I can see other women writers have the space to do work that doesn't fit into any sort of like standard, you know, formula. And and it's been really wonderful. Um, So it's grown a lot since then. So now it's, you know, we're open to submissions and, you know, we've we've published some really phenomenal writers. So, yeah. Well, we, we, we started this conversation talking about, you know, sacred spaces for women and about how we all lack that space but it sort of sounds like maybe you created that online I hope so yeah that's a really really excellent way of framing it (laughs) that makes me gets me all teary again because I wrote all my Bella women yesterday (laughs) oh thank you because they had all you know they I mean it's also just a really great community of readers you read each other's work and we do like really intensive editing on each other's work and on our writers and um, I think it's hard to find that kind of editing nowadays, yeah. you know, um, like really in-depth, really thoughtful editing. Um, so, yeah, so we've done a lot of that. So, so much of my book, just it, it really benefited from that, from having the these readers, these early readers and all of their comments. Um, 
but yeah, I also think, you know, that's, that's the goal with Vela is to create this platform for women that isn't framed in this sort of like, oh, it's only, you know, writing by women for women or about women's subjects, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. that you know, foregrounds the fact that it's writing by women, but that it, it's really good and it's for a general audience. And, you know, with the, the message also being hire these women, give them book contracts. And that has happened for several of our writers. And that's, that's really amazing to see. So, well, that's a cool thing. Yeah. 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 We have a, you know, we had a, an essay that we published last year, the year before called the sign for this about um, deaf culture and, and a personal story of, of Katie Booth, um, a writer who I actually met in my MFA program at Pittsburgh. And she has a book coming out next year, Simon & Schuster, that's going to mm. be an incredible book mm. um, about Alexander Graham Bell and deaf culture and oralist movement. So that was incredible to see. And we, we just published a piece um, called Super Babies Don't Cry, which is about raising a daughter with a chromosomal deletion and the way we sort of think about disability as a culture. And, and that piece resonated so much with readers. I mean, we, I've never, I've never had so many comments on a piece. It just moved people. And, and that was incredible to see. So that's, you know, that's why we keep doing it, even though it gets to be a lot of work at times, but it's, it's really incredible to see that. And I hope that writer goes on, you know, to write a book and, mm-hmm. and to grow from that. So mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. 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 So it's really rewarding in that sense to be part of that community and, and to be reminded constantly that really like you do do the writing on your own and you have to do that and you have to be able to have that discipline and that vision yourself. And yet, you know, we all really rely, I think on our communities, you yeah. know, yeah. and, um, and so Vela has, has really reinforced that for me. Especially as writers, because, you know, we're, we're isolated in our little offices and in order to do, you know, the bulk of the work that we do as writers, you have to be alone, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Or at least yeah. in your own chair at the coffee shop. I mean, it's a it's an isolating experience. So finding your yeah. community yeah. is essential. Yeah. Right. And then ideally, you're going to find those people who are going to call you out when you're being indulgent or when mm-hmm. you're, you know, when you're off track and who are going to sort of keep you honest, you know, and that that's really beneficial as well for your writing and and your sort of career so and that kind of community is important not just as writers but as I mean you need people in your life to call you out as a mother or as a woman or as a just an individual in the world you need those community of people to prop you up and and you know give you the kind of editing that you were talking about yes definitely definitely and it's hard you know I feel like it's harder to find that too as you get older so I, I find myself like more and more grateful for those people, the ones that stick around, you know. Oh, oh, yet you are, you have a three-year-old. You are just about to meet the yeah. best friends of your lives. Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. You are going to meet the best friends of your lives at this point because she's going to go into, a, you know, school and you are going to all of a sudden meet, you know, she's in a traditional classroom situation 30 other families who have children at exactly the same age as yours, all living in the same community that you do. And many of them will have very common interests that you do and you'll find each other. So, you know, where it is hard to find, it is hard to find friends, real friends as you get older, all of a sudden you're back in, you're you're back at school and that's where you find your friends. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, well, that's so encouraging. Yeah, yeah, that's so encouraging to hear because, uh, you know, we, we have sort of been in these bubbles, my husband and I, because we both freelance and so we both work from home. And sometimes mm-hmm. you just get sort of sucked into that cycle of like, we trade off watching the baby and working and cooking and mm-hmm. bedtime is it and the days just sort of fly by like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, yeah, we've really been, she'll, she'll start school for the first time in the fall. So that's uh, really exciting. I'm hoping that we do, we can like fill out our social calendar a little bit more yeah. <laughs> when that happens. Oh, you will. You absolutely will. It's an opportunity for you to choose how immersed you want to be in that community and, you know, right. you'll look around at the other 30 families in that classroom and the 30 families in the classroom next door, and you'll you'll find your people. It's guaranteed. Yeah. It's it's guaranteed. Everybody that's does. Great. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's so encouraging to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we've talked quite a bit here, and I want to ask you just a couple more questions that I like to ask all of my guests. 
And sure. the first one is this. How would you fill in the blank on this statement? Nobody ever told me that. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, okay. I need to think about that one for a minute. Um, I think that no one ever told me that motherhood would be the story itself. And I think that needs some context. So I'll try and give that. But I think I had always assumed that being like a really ambitious woman and trying to make this career for myself, that I would become a mother and then I would just fit that into my life the best that I could while mm -hmm. I kept on doing my thing. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, a lot of women do do that. My sister is a lawyer. She's done that. And she, you know, um, she's on her really high powered career track and she's done that and she, that works really well for her family. Her kids are great. She's, you know, they have an excellent family life. Um, and I think I would have thought that I would have done that, like sort of followed more that track of like, okay, you know, I'm going to mother as well, but then I'm going to have sort of my life and, and my story and my career. And for me, I was um, so taken with motherhood as an experience and as a change and as, as a way of seeing. And uh, so, you know, I don't know if anybody could have told me that or if I could have known that until I was pregnant. But, right. you know, I don't think anyone who would have met me in my 20s would have ever said like, wow, you're definitely going to become a mother. I really see you like getting into motherhood. You know, I was like riding boats across the Borneo, you know. So, I mean, I, it, it, I did not see that coming at mm -hmm. all. It's not that I didn't want to be a mother, but I thought it was something I would do sort of, you know, um, like I would, I would mother and then, but it wouldn't get in the way of my identity as a woman and an ambitious woman and all that. And, and, you know, not that it has, I think even the way of, t of talking about it now is different. I wouldn't say it's quote unquote gotten in the way or that the two things are necessarily incompatible. I just, my, um, my whole way of thinking about it has shifted and mm -hmm. it's become really central to how I think about who I am as a person and how I understand the world and even to my writing. So it that was a very long-winded answer, but yeah. the, I can yeah. fill in the blank with a few words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. You, it has to change your identity, and I think that that's where yeah. so many women really, really struggle. Is that giving up who you are is really, really difficult, and for too many women right. in our society, being a mother means that to some extent you got to do that, even if all that means is that all of a sudden you're not just who you were but now you are also someone else someone's mother right yeah right yeah right and you know and I think that that it's so unfortunate that so often the way that we think about that or portray that is as you know oh now you're sort of lesser than or you're less serious or you're yeah. you know you're, yeah. you're 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 diminished in some way and I think that I you know and and that's what I was so concerned about when I first got pregnant is I saw that you know and uh and then I realized like you know it, it actually is such an expansive experience you know it's extremely difficult in a lot of ways and and wrenching emotionally in all sorts of ways but it also really opens you up I think to mm -hmm. so many more dimensions of experience and um and that's incredibly powerful and uh, and not often explored because we tend to trivialize it so much. So. Yeah, yeah. I think that it is our responsibility as women on the earth, uh, women on earth at this time in history, to elevate the status of women in motherhood. It's our job. That's what we have to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so it's exciting to be part of. As you said, you know, I do think there is a shift happening, and that's really encouraging. And it's exciting to be part of that. It is. Yeah. So my last question for you then is, where are you in your life as a mom? Huh. Well, it's funny that you ask that at, at this week where I have literally like just potty trained and weaned my daughter. <laughs> so wow. I feel like, you know, wow, that, that was it. That was just the end of babyhood, you know, and three days, it's over. Wow. Um, so, you know, I feel like I, I am at, once again at this point of a, a really big shift in my um, you know, in my life as a mother where my daughter is about to start school in the fall. Um, and I have a lot more time now for my career and, and my focus on that. So, um, you know, our relationship is really changing to, you know, to be more of that of a kid and, and her mother and not so much a baby. And that's, um, you know, 
beautiful and difficult in its own way. Um, so, you know, I'm starting to envision this new era from now until teenagerhood, mm-hmm. heaven help me, mm-hmm. <laughs> in 10 years. Um, but where, you know, where it is a very different sort of relationship with my daughter than it was, you know, in, in all that intensity of infanthood. So I think the big challenge for me now is, okay, I'm, you know, there was a certain clarity to being the mother to a baby, you know, Mm -hmm. it was was really difficult and really crazy and really consuming, but something about it being that consuming in a way feels easier than now when I do have more time and more space for myself. And yet I'm such a different person. And Mm -hmm. so I think that, um, that, you know, I'm actually finding this transition, really difficult to, you know, it's, I mean, it's also wonderful to have a potty trained kid and to not be nursing any longer. But, um, but, you know, I feel like um, the sort of juggling act of, of self and work and family life is more complicated now that she's older. And now that, um, you know, it's not, I don't have to play that intense physical role all the time Mm -hmm. so that's what I'm sort of uh grappling with now and also very excited to have a full work day when she starts school in September well you are in transition big time aren't you yeah yeah definitely yeah Yeah, in all sorts of ways yeah well I have really enjoyed our conversation I think this has been a lot of fun and I'm I'm uh gonna you know be really excited to share your book with our listeners and with, you know, those of us that are working in this community. So thank you. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Good. We'll talk again soon down the road. Okay, sounds great. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, Mama said. Today's guest was Sarah Menkadik, and you can learn more about her at www.sarahmenkedik.com. Her book, Homing Instincts, is definitely available at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and probably at your local independent bookstore. You can check out my new site at genefaulkner.com. Email me at gene at genefaulkner.com. And I know my name is just a whole lot of letters, so here's how it's spelled. J-E-A-N-N-E Faulkner, like the writer, F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R. Email me, tweet me, and please, once again, go review the podcast on iTunes. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again next week. Bye-bye. Like I-